This is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando. And as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So you first, friend, what is astonishing you? I am astonished by Asian Americans saying we are no longer going to be the model minority. My heart is filled with all kinds of good things to see uh, Asian Americans respond um, with calls for justice um, in response to um, recent violence against them. I remember when I was in college, I think that's when I first heard the term model minority. I think I was taking a sociology class. And at the time, I remember being a, a bit jealous as uh, an African-American, but in time, I've been able to see that that's really been a term used to drive a wedge, number one, between uh, Asian and African-Americans, but also it's a way of saying these people know how to take their abuse. These people know how to take their injustice. They just work hard and keep their heads down. And so we're going to call them the model minority. And uh, they're saying, you know, we're not doing that anymore. And again, it just does my heart good uh, to see them respond with calls for justice. And it is a reminder that when it comes to battling white supremacy, we've had this duality, right? It's white Mm -hmm. and black. And we forget that it's really all people, regardless of your ethnicity, against white supremacy. And um, that we, we just have to remember that it is all of us against this beast of white supremacy. Right. And I think the most important thing, um, and I think some white people can mishear that statement and hear hear you saying something that you're not saying and all of us against white people. That's not what that's not what I'm saying. Not what you're saying. You're saying all people against this ideology of white supremacy, which is harm filled for all people. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not including white people. Correct. I mean, I think that's the huge lie assumption is, well, white supremacy at least is good for white people and um, white people will lose something by dismantling this ideology. And, and it's not, I mean, and, and, you know, I think it's really important. I mean, that to just to reiterate that, I mean, white supremacy is ultimately a culture of scarcity, competition, and hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And these three things are counter to anti- Christian, like they are antichrist. The revelation of God is that the kingdom of God is a place of abundance. It's a place of shalom. There's mutual flourishing. So in order for me to do well, you don't have to do bad. In fact, I can only do well if you also do well. Right. And that those are just, that's not a cultural model that the Western um, imperialism values, right? Like we dismiss that as a, as a fairy tale, um, idea or, or, you know, something that people who are losers want, right? Like, mm-hmm, oh, we just mm-hmm, want everything to be mm-hmm. the same. But I mean, that is the, that is the revelation of the kingdom of God. And it's one time, one reason that often people describe the kingdom of God as an upside down kingdom, this idea that everything is exactly the opposite of how we, of how we were taught and conditioned to assign value. And, and the other big thing. And and I think this is so hard to see. And then once you start to see it, lots of things fall into place, but you know, the, this idea of white supremacy is based on the idea of there being a group of people who are supreme. So it's, it's a hierarchical model where people get ranked according to worth. And according to this system, the people who are most worthy are at the top 
and that they are, and there's less of them than everyone else. So the, so whatever part of group you are, the more people that are in your group, the less valuable each individual. I mean, it's, it's just, and it's really important to, to realize that, that when you start to learn, and it's really hard for us to learn about the revelation of God, particularly the, the idea that God is both one and triune, that God is both one and three, one of the big takeaways from that is that it's not a hierarchy. It's not Father God on top, Jesus yeah. next, Holy Spirit last, right? Which is, I think how our sort of childlike brains, like we can't help but rank. And so we rank even mm-hmm. God's divinity and, and the revelation of the Trinity, which is so hard for Western minds to grasp. One yes. of the reasons it's so hard is because it is not a hierarchy. There is no hierarchy in it. And we don't understand how if there are three, one has to be on the top, one has to be on the bottom, one has to be in the middle, which is one reason that we can't wrap our brains around the idea that God is three in one, that the three are one, they are in unity, they are not ranked, they are not in competition. That blows our minds. And so one of the things you know, that God reveals to us in Jesus about this new form of community that is is not about competition or scarcity or ranking. And, and if we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us, then we are invited into that same kind of triune way of understanding that our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters, our strangers, our enemies, we're called to oneness with them. Not sameness, but oneness and unity like we see between the Father and the Spirit and Jesus. And 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 so that revelation is so is so important to us and we don't get it, which is why a lot of times this idea of the Trinity is like a a right answer to be checked on a test, but then we put it in a drawer and walk away from it. And we still mm-hmm. continue to organize our lives. You know, we teach people that in the family unit, the father is the most important and is in charge. And in the yes. church, the pastor is the most important and in charge, or the session is the most, or the, it's the trustees and then the session and then the deacons. Like we just, we, that's how the world has taught us. The culture has taught us to understand reality. And one thing that Jesus is doing is, is forcing us to not understand that. So, so it's bad for everyone, but it makes sense that in white supremacy, one thing that would happen is the ideal ideology would say, okay, white people are on top and certain types of white people are on the top of the top. And then we're going to rank everyone else according to their intrinsic worth as we define it. And the way that we define it is based on how closely people adhere to these values and this culture and the structure without questioning it. So Mm. it's craziness. Mm, That's good. But Let the ushers come to collect the offering because the word has been rightly preached. That was great. And you well, know, that leads me, I want to right yeah. now talk about the Royals. We'll, we'll, we'll hold that for a minute, but I want to hear. Thinking about, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not astonished by, I get, I mean, whatever, we can just take it out of order. Cause I, that's what I was going to say. It's just, I've been thinking about the Royal family. They're not astonishing mm-hmm. me, but obviously the interview that Oprah did, um, and I so miss Oprah. I so miss. Well, okay. Before we get into the royal family, can we just say how gifted she is? How great an interviewer she is? Like there were times when she would just just pause, and then more would come out. Or a simple question like, um, "Were you silent, or were you silenced?" right? Just that you're like, ah, okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I have always really listened. Some of Oprah's, Oprah has had tremendous, amazing power and influence given to her and I'm not mad about it. And also I think I don't agree with every single thing that she does with it, which is fine because I'm not her God or her judge. (laughs) And (laughs) it doesn't, I don't agree with anybody about every single thing, even up to and including you. (laughs) Wait, what? I'm just saying like, I don't, so there are things that Oprah does, like the whole secret thing. Like, oh friend, no, no. Um, Yes, I agree. But I deeply, deeply, deeply value her as a human. And I'm so grateful for 
the um, role that she's created for herself and our culture. And I think it is so, um, it's such a place of healing for just a black woman to have that kind of power and influence and authority. So I'm, I'm so grateful for her. And so just seeing her back um, on the screen, I was just helpful. Um, and remembering that, you know, there was a time when women of all different political ideologies had had tuned into her voice and it was helpful for her to have that level of influence. And I'm, and I'm sorry. Um, I mean, the world has changed in a lot of great ways, but I, and one of the ways that it's changed is that there are a lot of people who just now don't have access to her anymore. And I, and I think she was just a really important voice. Um, so I was grateful to have her voice there. And I was grateful to have her do that interview because I think she made it be about what it was really about, which is racism and white supremacy. And I think like we all were born into a world where like the royal family still exists in, I mean, I guess in lots of places, but in Britain most visibly. And I think, you know, I certainly never questioned that. It was just kind of a weird, a weird thing. Like to me, just different cultures have different things and you know, who are you to judge? Like if people want to have, if like the Royal family is the British version of Disneyland, like, I think that's weird, but cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, But I think just listening to that interview, it just takes you a minute to say like, gosh, why that's not normal, right? Like this idea that this is just a harmless relic that's about preserving history, but it doesn't really do yes. any harm or have any, I mean, like, it, it's it to me, it is the reason, you know, for the same reason that I am in favor of not destroying monuments to the Civil War, but putting them in museums where they can be put into context so that they're not just out there um, erected to the honor certain values that I think do not need to be honored anymore that I think need to be mourned and grieved and made uh, and repented for. Like, I, I think the Royal family is this living, this living statue to white supremacy. They are literally uh, in Britain, not in truth, but in, not in truth, but in their own self understanding of those who think that they have the authority to say what Britain is, they will tell you that Britain is a white nation. Like it is a nation of white people. And, and, so, and again, yeah. in the name of the queen, Britain yeah. went around the world. Correct. Say, oh, you got resources here. We're going to come oh, take th these are ours now. These are and ours. People and had to fight them <laughs> to leave their country. If right. you go yeah. to Tasmania, right? So uh, Aboriginal people looking a whole lot like me, they're, they're just wiped out. Why? The British said that in the name of the queen, this is ours now. Right. And, I, and, and just this idea that, you know, there's this mythology of Britishness and like the sun never sets on the British empire and all of this stuff, which I think you know, you can make an argument that people did not understand in the past what was happening, but we're not living in the past anymore. And so we do understand that now. And I think to sort of let this institution continue, I mean, whatever, again, I'm not British. So, but I'm just saying like, it's important for us to point out in self-understanding of Britain, Britain is a white nation. Britain's, you know, empire was based on the idea that white people are superior and everything belongs to them and they have the right to come in and take whatever and control all the resources of any place on the face of the earth you know their their only competition is other white nations right and and that of part of the resources of those nations are are the people within them and so there's this deep you know um horror in the heart of the british empire i mean even looking at world war ii and you People want to put Winston Churchill up on a pedestal because he stood up to the Nazis and said, like, no, we this can't be, and we you can't do this to people. But you know, Hitler only did to white people what Winston Churchill did in the continent of Africa with the total blessing of the British Empire, right? Like the British Empire was not against concentration camps, they were against concentration camps of white people, right? So again, like I do think that. Britain was on the right side of World War II, let me be clear. I'm just saying like they came to that battle as as 
as all whiteness did, because whiteness is so white people are so hurt by white supremacy that we come, our history is just bloody and filled with guilt. And, you know, the reality is, I think Americans, we are obviously responsible. White Americans are obviously responsible for what happened to Native Americans. Um, also, much of that ideology came from the colonialism that came over with Britain, which is to say, these people don't have white skin, therefore they have no rights. They have no rights and their lives are not valuable, which is why if they will be a model minority, we will use them in these ways. But the second they deviate from that, we have the divine right to kill them. So all this to say is you're, you're, you're watching this interview and realizing like, or me, cause I'm duh, I'm just slow to think sometimes. I'm like, oh, like the royal family, if Britain understands itself to be a white nation, then the royal family is literally the supreme white family. So yes. they are white supremacy. Like they are the top of the pyramid of whiteness is white people on top, but on, but you know, you see it in British society is like, you know, there's commoners and then there's tradesmen and then there's, I don't know what the rankings are, dukes and duchesses and baronesses and whatever, but it's a, it is a ranking mm -hmm. of whiteness and you have this family at the very top. And so like, obviously that is not, that is not healthy for anyone. And I think it's, you know, it is certainly um, profitable for the people who are at the top of the pyramid, but it is not life-giving or healthy, which is one of the things that you see that um, this couple bearing witness to, which is we um, we are being devoured by the system. And I, and I really appreciate just the truth that people mock, but I mean, the truth of the you know, Harry, the husband saying, my father and my brother are trapped in this system. And, and I get it because you, you, I mean, what he's naming is we, our whole identity is that we are this, we are part of this family and this is our rank within the family. And to sort of acknowledge that it's unhealthy would mean to question your whole identity. Like, who are you if you were sort of quote, born and bred to play this role in this family. And then you have to acknowledge that, oh, actually this isn't benign. This is not benign. Um, this is not cute. This is not, you know, a, this is not a version of being like a Disney princess. This is really <laughs> a persona. This is an embodiment of a lot of values that are deeply harmful. And, you know, again, like this past week, you know, there was a quote from one member of the royal family saying, like, our, I think he said something like, our family is the farthest thing from racist. And I'm like, you know, bless. Like, I understand why you're saying that. You're saying that because you understand racism as evil and bad. And you're saying, my family's not evil. My family's not garbage. And I agree with you. But the legacy of your family, and I mean, and of all white families, so like, I'm not, we, we're all wet from this storm of white supremacy. But I mean, like, you can't say your family is the farthest thing from racism and at the same time claim that you're special because you are descended from the people who literally slaughtered indigenous people all over the world and claimed their land and resources for your own. Like that's a legacy that you have to, you have to deal with. And if you just want to shut the door and say, we're the farthest things from racist, then what you're saying is, I don't, none of that is relevant. It, you know, it didn't hurt me. And so it's irrelevant as to whether or not it hurt anyone else. <laughs> and I also saw a clip of an interview where Charles, who is the oldest, the next and the quote next in line <laughs> to be king was at a uh, vaccine distribution center in a part of town that to was- To the Philippine nurse. Right. And, the, and she, yes. she, he was talking to somebody who was originally from Kenya and- and he was saying, oh, I love the Kenyan people. Please do tell them, give them my regards the next time you see them. And I was like, mm. oh, good Lord. <laughs> like, I mean, like you would make that up. And then, a, then the, next to her, there was a nurse from the Philippines. And he asked her, where are you from? She said, the Philippines. And he said, oh, that country must be half empty because they're all here. <laughs> We're like, awkward. Yeah, I mean, you just can't, I mean, this is the thing, you know, no one wants white people to say, 
oh my gosh, I'm a piece of garbage, a piece of trash. I don't deserve to be alive. I have no essential worth. Like that's not what anyone is asking right. anyone to do, yes. right? It's yes. not like we want to replace white supremacy with black supremacy or brown supremacy. But what we want to say is this ideology that says some are better than none, it didn't just disappear at any point in human history. It's still there. It's still functioning. And we need to pay attention to how for so long did we think that something was okay and natural, even God ordained when it was anti-Christ? And, and how do we name and understand those patterns so that we can replace them with truth that is life-giving and healing and leads to shalom? And that will not happen as long as people just say like, oh, I'm where I need to be. I'm not racist. I don't want to have this conversation. You can't, you can't grow that way. Yeah. I, I don't think there is a black person anywhere in the world that is surprised that there is racism in the British royal family. We're, we're just not surprised. What catches us off guard is that as we live, move, and have being in the world, we're never sure what kind of racism we're going to um, uh be confronted with, whether it's the follow you in the store racism or the police knee on your neck racism or the um, storm the Capitol racism or how dark is your baby going to be <laughs> racism, right? And so I, I, I thought Megan um, displayed quite a bit of courage uh, in that interview and just the, the, the whole marriage and being in that whole royal family, it's, it has to be excruciatingly painful. I felt for her deeply when she talked about wanting to harm herself, wanting to take her life. Like in that moment, I was like, that is very real. Um, and, well, it, and, and even like this idea that people heard that moment and could not even acknowledge with compassion that reality to her had to say, no, that's not true, right? Like, because what she said, when she told the, her experience, that made the royal family look bad. And so what had to be denied was her experience, right? And mm -hmm. so you have mm -hmm. like really popular British broadcasters, Piers Morgan mm -hmm. saying that I, that's a lie. She lied because, you know, because Darvo, because <laughs> that's exactly yes. Yes. A reverse victim and offender. And so like just to see that happen, how, and to re reframe this as spiritual warfare. And so just to see how the, um, the, you know, the lie, the narrative will get shifted in order to protect the lie instead of the person. And like, who is the expert on Meghan Markle's experience at that time in their life? Is it Meghan Markle or is it Pierce Morgan? Like, yeah. I, you know, I just, it's a crazy, it's a crazy reality. And I think yeah. as a white person, it's really easy to rank what we hear mm. from people of color who tell us, you know, these are the kinds of ways I've experienced racism. And it's easy for us to say like, well, obviously we agree knee on your neck is bad and being followed around the store, like, okay, that's bad. But like people say things to me that offend me all the time. And it's just part of being alive. So like, is it really like, we feel like we have the right to determine the level of harm that a person of color experiences from racism. And I think it's really important for us to recognize, like, I've never had the experience of someone telling me that my worth is tied to the color of my skin. So I don't know what that would yeah. do to my psyche. I don't know. And, and I'm wondering how much she's had to deal with that in life because there is a thing called colorism. Yeah. And if you look at Megan, she doesn't look like the ordinary black person, right? And so, and there, there's a variety of ways to be multi-ethnic. And um, I see Archie and he just looks like a white kid to me. And so I'm wondering if this is um, particularly overwhelming and painful for her because um, she just hasn't had a history. She hasn't had to uh, deal with these issues um, a, a lot. I don't know. I'm, I'm just guessing. 
but to now deal with it in the context of the British royal family with tabloids and um, uh, every the world looking at you has to be in just incredibly difficult. I'm also thinking about um, uh, Harry, and you mentioned his brother and his father, and um, I couldn't help but think about a time when I was in college and I was dating this white girl and it was just a regular old relationship. We would go out and apparently one of her friends from back home said to her parents, hey, did you know that she's dating so-and-so? And um, I mean, she got a call from her father that said, look, if you don't cut this, you are cut off. And mm-hmm. I remember this girl, this young woman that I was dating, just being really disoriented because she did not see this in her father, in her family. And it was, it was a, it was a, um, something she'd never had to confront before. And it, it was painful. And for me, it's just really astonishing that this, um, young man with all of this privilege said, we are getting out of here. Well, I mean, I think two things about that. One reason that I think, and I mean, but being shaped by the tragedy, I mean, I also think that white supremacy is what killed ultimately, like in terms of the ideology that killed his mother, right? Like this mm-hmm. idea that, you know, this marriage had to happen regardless of the fact that clearly it seems like his father never wanted to be in it. You know, just this idea that these people couldn't be people, they had to be living representatives of this institution and, and just, all, just all of that pain and trauma. I think that, you know, it makes sense to me that he knew in his own flesh what that institution had cost him. And so then when he sees, you know, when he said, like, when I see history repeating itself, I mean, that's what I think is important is that you see, it's really important to say, when we're talking about dismantling white supremacy, we're not saying let's do this for the sake of other people. It's not like, let's just be these moral heroes that, Mm -hmm. that swoop in and save people of color from this. No, like the people we're saving are ourselves. Like we're saying this is destructive for all kinds of people especially it's perilous for the souls of white people. And in fact, I think, you know, it is more destructive for the bodies often of people of color, but it is more destructive for the souls of white people to be part of this ideology and to buy into it and to think that your identity, that you have to stand up for the system in order to stand up for yourself. And so I think, you know, it makes sense to me that he would say, I get what this is. I recognize it. I know what can happen. And I'm, and I don't want to be part of it. It's not worth, yeah. it's not worth the cost of this person I love to be part of this, whatever, basically this construct that is not, um, is harmful. So I, yeah, I, I think the whole thing is fascinating. And I think I've heard several people say, Hey, it's really important as Americans this can be an interesting thing for us to observe because for once it feels like, oh, it's not us. (laughs) And it's really, it's really important just to say like what you see there is at play here. It just looks different. Right. So when you, when you sort of say like, I don't understand what people are upset about in terms of police brutality, or that's not real or what, like you can see it there, but the same ideology is, is here. And um, yeah, it's, it's a wild it's a wild ride. Well, it's for me, it's been a beautiful thing to see um, black women, especially celebrities, rally around Megan. Um, and kudos to Tyler Perry, who <laughs> said to them, hey, come, come live here. I mean, how amazing is that? A black American man says, you guys come live here. I'll pay for what security and whatever. And then a black woman gives them a platform to tell their story. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but another thing that struck me about the interview was Megan's language um, about protection. It's like the family has the power to protect everyone in the family but chooses to protect some Mm -hmm. and not others, namely her. 
right? right. So yeah. here's this member of the family accused of whatever with um, Epstein and right. Yeah. So totally, the firm, as <laughs> she calls it, protects this member of the family and could protect her. And I, and maybe it's just me, but I think that resonated with a lot of African-Americans, right? Well, and just it, the idea that they're making all these announcements that they're going to have an independent outside investigation of her and how she treated her staff. But I've heard, but they've never had an independent outside uh, investigation of this is Prince Andrew, who was accused by several underage women of rape. And he was a great friend of Jeffrey Epstein, who committed suicide while he was in prison and is sort of infamous for running this human trafficking scheme, right? So it's just interesting to say, like people want to say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And you go like, okay, I believe that you believe that. But then can you explain why these accusations that this woman was unkind to her staff merit a public condemnation and an announcement of a public investigation. And you release a statement saying bullying will not be tolerated. But when a biological member of your family is credibly accused of rape and participating in human trafficking and having sex with underage girls, you say nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So you can say that has nothing to do with race, but I don't believe you. <laughs> well, it, it's the same thing when it comes to policing in America, right? So the call of police is to protect and serve. And yet our experience is that some are protected, some are served, and others are not. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I know that people get sick of how often, well, not I know that some white people are just really have a hard time with saying like, why are you always talking about race? Why are you always talking about race? Isn't there anything else to talk about except race? But I think it's really important that to acknowledge the truth that this country founded by the, well, I'm sorry, um, the United States of America was founded as a colony of the British empire and the British empire is a racial construct. So all of these founding ideologies are based in this narrative that white people are more valuable, their life has more worth, and they should have more rights than anyone else, which is why you can have the founders of this country writing a document in all sincerity saying all men are created equal. And it never, it literally never occurs to them that that would apply to Native Americans or enslaved Americans, because in their eyes, they're literally not fully human. And, and again, like these things don't just spontaneously go away. And so we, we have to talk about them and we have to be looking for how this sin has pervaded and infected all parts of our common life together. And why we as Christians have to be really clear about saying we are citizens of the kingdom of God and this is our culture and, this is, and, and these are the values um, that we are being formed in by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the, the scripture that comes to mind here is where the Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. And the Greek there means to be squeezed into a mold, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, part of the danger of white supremacy, uh, in addition to uh, systemic racism, is an ideology that gets in and infects and becomes normal and even adopted by the people it oppresses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, sure. And you see that all the time. And that's one of the things that happens in this conversation is that people will come out and make um, statements in support of white supremacy. And because they happen to be people of color, then white people say, see, it's okay, because there are some black people who it doesn't, that's irrelevant. Like it, it's not about the color of the skin of the person who's making the argument you know, the, it, it's about what is truth and do we, are we people of the truth even when that truth is painful and accuses us? And again, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we begin with an understanding that we are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And we have these examples in our gospels of the people who were formed by the covenant, um, creating idols out of that covenantal responsibility and having to unlearn 
everything they were certain was true about themselves and about God. And that's not just like the bad priests and the bad Pharisees and the bad Sadducees. It's also the disciples, right? So it's every single person. That's why this, this dominant metaphor in our tradition of being born again is really helpful. We all do need to be born again and again and again and again. Mm. And when we discover that something we believed in the past was not truthful, we aren't supposed to be offended and we aren't supposed to be afraid that our eternal worth is at stake. We know what our eternal worth is. We look at the cross and see it. So therefore we can say, you know, I see what that is now. I repent of it and I'm going to turn around and walk in a new way because my righteousness and my acceptance was never based on my own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ that had been imparted to me. So when I know better, I do better. Um, and that's, that's something that I don't think we get because Christianity itself has been corrupted and infected by white supremacy or rather white supremacy has shown up wearing a mask. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And that's not, that was never the real gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, like I was reading a quote, I think they were quoting, um, gosh, I can see his face in my mind. Who's the guy who said to be black in America and to be relatively conscious Baldwin Baldwin mm. Baldwin there's a Baldwin quote saying like um that that American Christianity has taken Jesus hostage has taken the man from Nazareth hostage and and he doesn't know them and they don't know him and I I think that's really I mean it gives me no pleasure to say that but when I look at the way that Christian institutions have co-signed on whatever the extermination of African Americans are on slavery on Jim Crow, on, you know, uh, when I see how many Christians have found no conflict between that and their faith in Jesus, who was um, part of a, a community without rights in an empire who was unjustly convicted and murdered by the state like the fact that Christians can co-sign on the ways that the empire has destroyed life and yielded violence to make peace. And we don't see a conflict with that. I think Baldwin is at, it's just right. It's not about saying anyone is worthless. It's about naming reality. So. And as difficult, as painful, as ugly as this is, the truth is, that the the scripture is right in all things god works for the good yeah. and yeah. so um i'm trusting and i'm hopeful that in this painful time talking about this ugly thing when we'd much rather talk about something else that god is using this time to um bring healing and justice to bring us to a better day i, I can't help but um um trust that. To me, it's like uh, when I've counseled families and there's been some huge secret that most of the families know, uh, most of the family members know about um, some kind of sense. And so, yeah. And some like, they just know something's wrong. It's like, why, why isn't this family working? And, and there's some secret. And then the secret gets, somebody says, okay, this is the thing. And often there is an immediate reaction by others in the family who said, we are not talking about that. Mm -hmm. Like I've counseled families in which there was um, infidelity, physical violence, and just several things going on. But when you see them on Sunday, on Sunday morning, everyone's dressed nice, kids are well-behaved, right? Um, but there's this reaction, we will not talk about this. But if you can get them to begin to deal with it, that's when the healing comes. And I, I think this subject of racism we and white supremacy, we'd rather not talk about it. But as a human family, this yeah. is part of the uh, the secrecy uh, that's that's causing our dysfunction. Well, I mean, I think of the verse, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Mm, that's good. We don't want to talk about it. And the reason we're hiding from it is because we think that it is the most powerful force. And the only way we can deal with it is to deny that it's true. And and what we what faith in Jesus Christ compels us to do is to say, we can talk about this because we believe that the grace of God is sufficient for us in this too. So mm -hmm. we can we can look at it. We can bring it out into the light. And we can know that even if this is true, 
um, God's goodness is still more powerful. And this is, um, and, and, and this can be faced because we face it with Jesus. And if the early church could confront and work through the issues surrounding Jewishness versus Greekness. I mean, talk talk about division and pain, right? If they could confront and work through that, we can confront and work through this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that leads me, and this is related to everything else, but I think the thing that is astonishing me, that astonished me most this week, and I I just am remembering it right now, and I'll say this really quickly. I, I was having a conversation with a friend who um, was telling me about a conversation she was having with a friend of hers um, who is uh, who is a person of color. Um, and, and this season has been really traumatic for this person as it's been for a lot of people of color just to watch all of the rhetoric surrounding worthiness and all of the rhetoric surrounding you know, making America great again and knowing that in a lot of people's minds, what that means is going back to Jim Crow and segregation and, you know, and and just the way that's been co-signed by so many within the church. And and this is a person of color who has been part of multi-ethnic evangelical communities and sort of one of the um, things that they are deeply questioning um, now after living through this season and after seeing the way that the church they're a part of has largely chosen to deal with it by not acknowledging it is um, this person has come to the conclusion that there is no such thing as a healthy multi-ethnic church for people of color. That, um, that people of color can only be healthy in a church where, um, where it, you know, it's an all, it's a, it's a racially homogenous space, that that's the only safe place. And her, and this is based on her experience that in a multi-ethnic community, whiteness, the, the comfort of white people gets centered all the time. And so her experiences, multi-ethnic churches are very good for white people because white people um, grow and learn and um, but but all at the expense of people of color in those communities who are expected uh, when there is something that is painful for them either to not address it, <laughs> to sort of preemptively forgive everyone and just take it, or um, if they are going to address it to center the needs of the white person who hurt them over their own. And so to spend a lot of time thinking about, well, how can I say this, that this person won't feel uncomfortable and that this person won't feel like they're being accused of racism. And so this, per- how can I do this? So this person mm. can hear me. how, like, you know, what I need is this, you know, but what can I reasonably expect? So like how, you know, just, and, and this is this person's experience and, and, you know, that many multi-ethnic churches um, and we talk about this all the time. They are they are ethnically diverse, but they are culturally homogenous. Mm-hmm. That that's very harmful. I mean, it's harmful for everyone, um, but especially harmful for people of color in those communities who basically um, their pain becomes one of the resources in that community, right? That um, and and so I I was just thinking about that a lot, and I I was astonished, um, and I'm not questioning her experience. Um, and this person is not, I mean, it's not someone, you know, and it's not someone who's part of either of our churches. Um, but I mean, that's not, you know, she's not the only person who thinks that, you know, I, I hear people write about that Mm -hmm. quite frequently. Um, and I, and I really, um, want to take that very seriously. I don't want to dismiss it um, because I do think that a lot of multi-ethnic churches are deeply harmful for everyone. A lot of multi-ethnic churches are reinforcing white supremacy instead of dismantling it, like basically saying, inviting people to come in and and play the role of model minorities and to say, Mm -hmm. like, just be happy to be here. Don't complain about anything. If something's wrong here, it's you, not us. And conform to the majority. Right. And just the, the way we do things isn't the way we do things. It's the right the way, way. Things are done. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, 
And yeah. so I just, you know, I, I take that really seriously, especially as a white person, knowing that I have my own biases and fears and brokenness that I can't just snap my fingers and get rid of. Um, and I cannot with deep humility, I cannot accept that premise that healthy and holy multi-ethnic churches are not possible, even putting aside the biblical witness, right? Because obviously mm-hmm. I think the biblical witnesses, the early church was not perfect, but it was God ordained. Um, and it certainly was multi-ethnic. Um, but I think to, to say, to acknowledge it and just say the way, um, the way to move forward is just to keep people in ethnically homogenous groups so they can't hurt each other. I think what that does is to say that we believe that white supremacy is more powerful than the gospel of Jesus Christ, that even the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot overcome um, the power of white supremacy. And so I definitely do not believe that that ideal is an excuse to harm people made in the image of God. Like, I don't think, I don't at all say like, because it's necessary to be a multi-ethnic church, whatever anybody has to suffer in pursuit of that is fine. It's not fine. It's not fine at all. Um, And I think that it is really important for any community that um, feels called to be a multi-ethnic community to really be aware of the ways that that can be harmful um, to people of color and the ways that biases creep in and the ways that we don't know one another's experiences, even if we think that we do. Um, and also I think we have to work it out in fear and trembling, um, if we truly believe that Jesus is Lord. So, but I just, it broke my heart. Well, I, I think, um, I have a couple of responses. Um, one, I do think there is a truth um, in yeah. that it is it is nearly impossible uh, to have really healthy multi-ethnic congregations, and it is possible only by the work of the Holy Spirit. It It is. It must be a spirit-driven, spirit-empowered work because of how flawed we all are. That's number one. Number two, I think this person may be confusing or or putting together um, healthy and like healthy and safe versus pain free and risk free. I think you can have healthy and safe, but you cannot have pain-free and risk-free multi-ethnic church. It's just not going to happen on this side of the second coming. Right. You and will ha- the early church was neither pain-free nor risk-free, right? Right. So to re-normalize yes. the idea yeah. that being a part of Christian community costs something yes. and requires risk. And, yeah. and it, there will be pain for ethnic minorities in multi-ethnic congregations. There will be pain. There will be pain. There will be pain. There will be hurt. There will be um, hard conversations. It will not be easy. The road will be hard and rocky. The devil is tricky and is always looking for a way to drive a wedge in relationships. It will be very hard. But at the same time, it can be healthy, right? We we have some healthy families, but it's not easy. It's hard, right? right? And I, like part of it is to say the challenge comes in when all of the pain is with certain, you know, like mm-hmm. if, if you are in a multi-ethnic community that is really hard and painful for people of color, but not for white people, that's problematic. But when it's hard and painful for everybody in the community, then counterintuitively, I think it's much more likely to be healthy. Yes. Um, If I, well, I was going to say, if I could broadcast the message, but I guess that's what we're doing now. If I could, (laughs) (laughs) I 
I forget sometimes that people that people are absolute that people are um, listening. Um, but if I could broadcast a message to African Americans in historically white congregations or in mega churches, and you've just gone through the past year or two, and you have felt like the leadership have 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 not been for you in a way that was risky for them, I would say get out. Unless the Lord is telling you to stay, leave, get out. If you are in a multi-ethnic congregation and it's hard, but it's not only hard for you, but hard for everybody in the space, the Holy Spirit is probably telling you to stay. Um, And especially, well, I'm, I'm, I'm debating whether or not to say this because you're not going to like what I'm about to say, but it's it's true and I need to say it. But I think one of the blessings of the Grove is that their pastor is safe. Their, the, their, their pastor is a safe person who wrestles with this issue. Their pastor is a person who genuinely is not simply trying to get people of color in the room for ego, for appearance, for um, ideology's sake. But it is a genuine heart desire which costs the pastor something. That is, in my experience, very, very rare. And so I would say to African-Americans, and we know just just by our experience in the world, we know how to test people whether or not they're safe. And sometimes we can get fooled in multi-ethnic congregations because what we hear from the pulpit lines up with our doctrine. Right. Mm-hmm. So if the if the if the preacher preaches Jesus died for your sins, rose from the grave, and he's coming back to create a new heaven and new earth, we say, Yeah, oh, and if we listen to the teaching Sunday in and Sunday out and say, Wow, this pastor really um is a good teacher and feeds me in very meaningful ways, I think we can kind of get fooled that that translates into an understanding in this area. A, a, a being for you. And that is not always the case. And I would I would say to those folks, um, don't give up on the idea um, of multi-ethnic congregations because it is not, first and foremost, it's not a human idea. Correct. It's God's idea, right? right? So don't give up on it because it's God's idea. We mess it up, but it's God's idea. Yeah. So, but continue to search for, uh, continue to be a part of knowing that it will always cost you something. Well, and what I think is so interesting about this, one of the things that our friend Lisa Coons, who has just this habit of saying things in very few words that completely. She's great for that. Become these like touchstones in your life. And you think how, how did I get to this point without knowing it? But I think one of the things that she's taught me And she said, you know, look, anointing doesn't always correlate to maturity. In fact, what she said is anointing rarely equates to Mm -hmm. maturity. Mm -hmm. So you can be in a space in any kind of, in any kind of institution and someone can have just a, a gifting or an anointing that makes them really excellent at an important part of that. So like you can have a preacher who is an anointed preacher and what is coming out of that person is, is true and is full of the spirit and it is powerful and it is good. And we think like, oh, so that means this person is very mature and is very committed to the Jesus. Like we think that your anointing correlates to your maturity and it, and it doesn't, and it, it often really doesn't. And so someone can you experience them as being used by God in the pulpit and your experience is valid, but that does not mean, I mean, this is my favorite phrase is like, God makes donkeys talk. So the reality is like this person up there can be ministering to you, but that doesn't mean that person, I mean, to use your language, that doesn't mean that person is safe. It doesn't mean that person is mature in Christ. And so I think it's just really important to, to recognize, um, 
to recognize that and not make those assumptions and and to know that ultimately for us Christianity and and Judaism that it flows from is a it's a walking it out religion it's a it's a way it is not a set of beautiful ideas it is a truth that changes who we are and how we move in the world in ways that are not valued by this world and so if you if you see someone and they and they're preaching and it's all good but then you look at their life and it's not in it's not conforming to the fruits of the spirit i mean we're not called to judge them but we don't need to put ourselves under their authority or to make ourselves unsafe by just assuming that since the Lord is using them in the pulpit, that means everything they do outside of the pulpit is good and beneficial because it's not. And listen, if you are a black woman, it's very difficult. I think if, if I could by grace, put myself in a black woman's shoes, it would have to be extremely difficult to navigate these issues mm-hmm. because if you go to some historically black churches, there's going to be male leadership. And it's not going to value you Mm -hmm. as a woman in that space. Mm -hmm. And so you leave and go to this other space. Let's say that might um, value you as a woman, but as a black woman Mm -hmm. um, devalues you. And so you're, you're in another space where who you are uh, as as wonderfully created by God is not welcomed and valued. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's given a lower status. And so, yeah, I can see why a, a Black woman in particular would be like, I, I just don't know about not just multi-ethnic churches, but about the church in general. And yet, here we are wrestling with um, with all these issues. Yeah, well, and I think also we need to be honest about the fact that sometimes we have expectations that are not in line with the gospel and that we want a community to have certain fruits of the spirit, but we also want them to have a certain level of like niceness in facilities or convenience or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 because we, those things are givens that we're not willing to negotiate on, then then you know, that comes at a cost, right? And so I think it's important to be able to say, maybe the place where the spirit is really calling you and moving you is like a tiny little church with a shitty facility. No youth group. Greatest youth group, right? And I'm not saying like, I'm not saying, you know, all those things that churches have, they're good and God can use them. But I'm saying like, if you are saying, I won't go anywhere where there's less than X number of people, then I mean, what about the witness of scripture leads us to believe that the only place where God is, is a place that's large and wealthy and highly respected by the community. Like the witness of the New Testament is that a lot of churches were, were small, they were marginal, they were not respected by the dominant culture that they were within. And it took a lot of sacrifice and risk to be part of them. And I think we, we don't want that. We show up often to be consumers. And so which yeah. makes it difficult for that mentality that you just described so well makes it difficult then for the people in those congregations to dismantle the very thing they need to dismantle because they think if we dismantle white supremacy or male supremacy then right. our church will be even more disrespected in the culture and right even more marginal even, even more, more marginal and yes. i i hear people say that explicitly they say listen a man needs to be in this role because if a man's not in this role no men will be part of this ministry mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so they're saying mm-hmm. it's not because it's right it's because it's necessary yes and yes. it is necessary was the phrase that caiaphas used wow before he said Let's go ahead and put Jesus wow. on it. It wow. is necessary to do this, right? We don't like it. We know it's not right, but this is just what we've got to do. And and the end does not justify the means mm. ever in the body of Christ. Um. Anyway, so I we've been talking a long time and we're, <laughs> I you have to go. I have to go. We have to be done. You have to go pick up your kid from school. I do. I do. <laughs> do you want to share what you're thinking about before we go? I already did. I'm. I'm thinking about, uh, Megan and all that. I'm astonished by Asian power. 
and uh, thinking about making. But I'm curious about what you're preaching uh, forgiveness more, right? This you're continuing the series. Another, and... I have another uh, yes, and I and this series is kicking my butt because it's not because it's not theoretical because it needs to be practical because it needs to be a space to equip the saints to to walk this out like you you i mean i I was gonna say you can't do this but you can you can believe theoretically in forgiveness and refuse Uh. embody it in your life um but i mean again i didn't say this jesus did but jesus called that hypocrisy and he's not a fan and so i think you know it's really important that we are trying to embody our faith which we're going to do badly and i think whatever this is a spirit like i hate it when people talk about doing things with a spirit of excellence because i just think that, that sometimes that means we just go like okay well i don't have to i don't have to do that or like i can't i can't learn or i can't grow but just this mm-hmm. like painfully awkward process of saying this is not natural to me and yet i understand that it's a sign of the gospel so i've got to figure out how to partner with the holy spirit and growing um in growing the spiritual muscle so yeah so we're talking about forgiveness and trying to talk about it really practical like you know here are three spiritual you know here's a spiritual practice like a prayer practice that you can use so i'm and i think this next week um I think the the thing that I need to talk about next is this idea that if you, and I got this partly from you, if you have not fully accepted your own forgiveness from God, then you can't forgive someone else. Like if you refuse to accept your own forgiveness from God, if you are still striving for it, if you're still using that anxiety as motivation to keep yourself in line, then, I mean, you can't give away what you don't have. So, Mm. so I think this next step of saying, how can we really sit with what it means to be forgiven and to put on that identity in and let go of the myth that if we just try a little harder, we won't need to be forgiven because we will have made ourselves well. So that's what Yeah, those who are trying to earn their own righteousness by means of the law, use the law to crush others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the principle of the thing. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, and I, I mean, I understand, like, if you, if you are still committing to earning it, then you're not going to give it away. That's right. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, there's just a lot of like, we all came up in America that at least until recent, recently was some version of Christendom. And so for a lot of us, we associate Christianity with just being a good person. And so we cling to Christianity because we think we're good people. And I think it's really important to say like, no, Christianity is a very particular and peculiar way of seeing humanity, of seeing God and of committing to walk through the world. And, and you may be a good person who actually doesn't believe in this way. And mm that's something we got to sit with. So Mm. anyway, and what are you preaching about this week? I'm not sure yet. It's just Monday, but I am thinking about um, the Barabbas text where the crowd um, asked for Barabbas. And I believe it's in Matthew. Um, He is named Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas, So you have these two people named Jesus and the crowd wants one and not the other. What is that about? I've never preached that. I've read it a billion times, but never preached it. So I'm leaning in that direction as we move toward Easter, but I'm not sure yet. Again, it's only Monday. Mm, There's so much to do with that, with like the two ways of bringing freedom, freedom and and peace through the sword or through sacrifice. And Mm -hmm. when the crowd is saying, we want... We want Barabbas because Jesus Barabbas was a revolutionary, right? He was. Yes. Yeah. And this, and yesterday the the sermon was about um, our tendency to know some things about Jesus, but then fill in the gaps with things that we like and, you know, reject other things about Jesus that challenge us. And so it's very easy for us to create a Jesus of our own liking, to shape a Jesus of our own liking. And um, yeah. the scripture really challenges us to, are, are, are we following the, the, the real Jesus, uh, the Jesus of the Bible, or are we um, 
uh, asking for a Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas? You know, that's a great segue to say, I actually got a text yesterday from a mutual friend being like, oh my gosh, Yolanda's sermon was so oh, great. Wow. And I was like, thanks. Thanks. Appreciate she is it. Thanks kind for and wonderful. So, so that is a wonderful segue to say, if you want to find out more about Yolanda's ministry at Dorita Presbyterian Church, D-E-R-I-T-A, Pres, go to DoritaPres.org. That's their website. You can listen, watch, experience uh, worship with Dorita Church on their YouTube channel and hear that really great sermon of Yolanda's yesterday, which he gave a Slim Shady shout out. His sermon title was, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? I have thoughts, but I'm going to, I'm just going to leave that there. Um, and I'm going to be listening to that later today. And if you want to find a lot of bingeable content, you can go and listen to Yolando's old uh, sermons on there. I get this wrong every time. Podbean, Podbean website, yes. the Dorita Church podcast. And if you want to find out more about the Grove Church where I serve, uh, you can uh, go to our website, which is uh thegrovecharlotte.org. It's very confusing. Um, you can worship with us on Sunday mornings on our Facebook live stream at 10 a.m. Just look for the Grove Church. Um, and we've got a green tree. There's lots of Grove churches. So so, so find us. And um, you can listen to messages from the Grove at our um, podcast, which is on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, um, the Grove Church podcast. So thank you. Um, thanks for spending this time with us. Um, and we will talk to you next week.